Cheers. Thank you. Well, it's good to be here. Thank you for inviting me and my wife all the way from uh, Fareham down here into Cornwall. It's been great. One of the things that we noticed was a little bit strange when we arrived here was uh, we were staying at John Julian's house. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a farmer around here. And uh, he said, you know, as a Cornish man, I, I, I invite you to Cornwall and, uh, and I give you permission to speak in Cornwall. And I thought, that's an odd thing to say. So... So then I, I came here last night at the prayer meeting, before the meeting, and then uh, Mike came up to me and said, you know, as a Cornish man, I invite you into Cornwall, that you can speak into Cornwall and all this sort of stuff. And then, um, well, yeah, and then several other people came and said the same thing again. And I thought, that's really peculiar. And I, I, didn't really, I didn't really think much of it at the time, other than it's a little weird. You know, if you, if you come down to Portsmouth, I won't say to you, as a member of Portsmouth... I give you permission to speak into our... <laughs> so anyway, so I thought that was kind of odd. But as, as we were at the prayer meeting last night, uh, in my mind's eye, I was seeing the people that were praying uh, around here, but I saw them dressed like Celts with their faces with their war makeup on and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, well, that's also weird. And, um, but having... having <laughs> Being here last night and today, I kind of understand a little bit of what's going on here. And, uh, and also... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is some kind of joke that, that, that you're all in on and I'm not. So, and I just felt, as I was sat down earlier on, when Mike brought his second talk to a conclusion, that I kind of felt like God wanted me to do something, which is a little bit odd. Um, but I'm going to do it anyway. But I, just to, just to re-clarify a bit of our history. So in the early, early church, um, the church had two sections. So you had the eastern section of the church and you had the western section. They reckoned the eastern section was more following the, the kind of the vibe and the teachings of the Apostle John. So they were kind of, you know, John, if you read his gospel, he's quite out there, isn't he? You know, the word became flesh and all this kind of stuff. So he's quite out there. Uh, And then you have the other school, which is the Western school, which followed the the teachings of Peter. He's more of a down-to-earth kind of guy, you know. And uh, and so that became a major part of Christendom in in 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th century. And then it it was those that followed the Eastern side... Uh, and, in the, and the customs of the Apostle John, they're the ones that came to Britain. And they're the ones that became then the Celts. Um, and then later on, as we know, there was that uh, famous Council of Whitby in AD 664, um, where the Western side of the church, because the church was one, even though there were different ways of doing things, they were one church. And so the differences between the Celts, the Eastern Bloc, and the Western was this. So the Eastern Bloc celebrated the Passover at the same time as the Jews did, and they observed Sabbath and still did Sunday and all that kind of stuff. So they had loads of days off in a week. And um, so, you know, they were, they were on to something there. And then, but then the Western Bloc, they wanted to move Easter so it always conveniently fell on a Sunday. Uh, they didn't observe Sabbath and they did this whole Sunday thing. And so at the Council of Whitby, it was the, the, the nation was full of these Celtic Christians and it was, okay, we need you guys to knuckle down and we need to, we need to be one church. And in fairness to the Celts, you know, they did it. And, and I, think, I think it's a shame as well that, that something in Britain was lost. And I feel, 
That, you see, from my area where I live, we've got a guy, uh, an, an old saint, called Saint Wilfred. And uh, he built loads of churches near where I live, uh, a great missionary in his day. But he was at the Council of Whitby, and it was him that was very much on the west side saying, we need to get the, church to, the whole church to conform to one date. And obviously they wanted to fo- follow the Roman calendar. And I, I felt, as uh, listening to these talks earlier, that I have to come to you now, being invited into Cornwall to speak into Cornwall, to represent the stream from the west, to apologise to the stream in the west, the east, sorry, for assimilating your culture. And so, could I ask Matt and John to come up here? And I'm, I'm just—it's a symbolic thing. Just so I'm not going to do anything hard. I'm not going to hurt you. Yeah, Mike, Mike, and I don't know. I'm terrible with names. Yeah, Ed, Fred. Okay. So they—they're going to—they represent the east. They represent the, the the Cornish side, the Celtic side. And I'm here representing the West uh, and the more the sort of liturgical side. And, and I just want to say, on your level, um, that I know it sounds silly, but prophetically, I believe that I have to apologise for, for what we did and how we, and how we assimilated your culture. And I think in these days, God wants to bring back that diversity. Um, and, but across the whole spectrum, that includes the West and it includes the East as well. It's not just one or the other. And, uh, and, I, and I just feel what God's doing here today is to symbolise the beginnings of that, re- ref- not reformation, but a reformation and a resurgence of those ancient paths. So I'd just like to apologise to you, brother. Hallelujah. Because our God is a God of reconciliation and restoration. So I just felt I had to do that to start with. So <clears throat> uh, moving into the realm of the prophetic was not something that I asked for, but it was something that I did agree to. And I'm just going to start with something that happened to me a long time ago, just to bring it into where we're at now and how this all f- comes into the bride coming of age, etc. Um, Many years ago, in 2006, I say many years ago, some of you were probably born then, uh, but in 2006, um, I I woke up one day, went downstairs, had a quiet time, and I fell into a a trance, and I had these three visions. And in the first vision, I was driving a car, and as I looked in the rearview mirror, I could see this volcano, and it exploded, and this pyroclastic flow came down and came up behind me. Then the dream ended, then I fell into another trance, and this time something else happened, and I fell into another trance, and again, I, I, I was this time I was in a forest, and I saw the flow of this forest, of the lava, sorry, came down into this village and wiped it out. And I didn't really think much of it. I told my church leaders at the time, you know, saying, you know, this is what I believe God said to me this morning, and they were like, okay, Chris, we'll uh, put that on the back burner, and, um, and kind of just left it at that. And two weeks later, um, I was uh, with some friends playing snooker or something, and uh, on the on the on the on the wall was a big TV, and it just ended with Channel Four News. I mean, who would play Channel Four News in a pub? I mean, I don't know. But anyway, so Channel Four News came up, and at the end, it had that mountain. I was like, that's that's exactly the same mountain in my vision. And uh, so I did a bit of research into it, and then I found out the United Nations were on the ground and they, they weren't sure if it was going to explode or not. They didn't know how, if, which side the lava would come down. And there was a village there 
and the villagers wouldn't leave until they'd had a message from God. But the guy who had the messages from God had died. And I'm like, well, this can't be for real. This, this, is, this isn't Christianity. This, what is this? You know, this is just something on a whole other level. This, this, unfortunately, this is my baptism of fire into the prophetic. And so I, uh, I got in contact with the United Nations and I, I, I told them my warning. I said, I do believe that that volcano is going to erupt and there'll be a pyroclastic flow and it will come down and it will destroy that village and you need to evacuate the village. And I, I honestly didn't think they'd listen to me. They actually wrote back to me because we were on e- email correspondence. They said, we're taking what you said seriously and we're evacuating the village. Two days they evacuated the village, but two scientists, United Nations scientists, remained in the village. And then two days after that, then it exploded. A pyroclastic flow took out the village, killed the two scientists, and God saved those people. And that, that was kind of like my introduction to the, to the world of the prophetic, which I have to say was a bit unfair, because I had nobody who could train me, disciple me, no one wanted to go near me. Um, you know, it's just like, leave that guy well alone and avoid him. So, so I had to like, just grow up myself, which was really, really hard. And God gave me these series of dreams and, and series of prophecies. And I eventually got comfortable with the prophetic. And, uh, and then my life changed, really, in 2018. You know, I, I, I planted several churches and I was quite happy doing that. Kind of knew, thought I knew where I was going. And I remember on October in 2018, I got up to give a nice, cosy, pastoral message, you know, which uh, probably Matt preaches every Sunday. And, um, and I thought, I thought, I know, I'm just going to give a nice, a nice, cosy homily or something. And just as I got up, I heard the words, mene, mene, tekel, passin. I was like, what? And then this instant download came in about Theresa May and various other things. So I got up for the front, and I, this is recorded, it's on our YouTube channel, and for the next 40 minutes, this long prophecy came out, which basically said how God was going to remove Theresa May from power because she had fudged the vote that had gone through and she was trying to do some deal with Europe. He wasn't pleased with it. I'm sorry if there's any pro-Brexit no, you know, people that wanted to stay in Europe. Now, this is just what I got at the time. Uh, so if you've got a problem with it, speak to him. And so I... I, I got this download and I, and I basically said that Brexit was going to happen uh, Theresa May would be stepped down. And then after I'd said all that, all this other stuff started coming out that I have no understanding. Most people prophesy from a place of understanding. I was prophesying about things that I didn't understand what was even coming out of my mouth. And some key things that come out of my, ma- my mouth were that God was going to restore the ancient paths in this nation. He was going to blend the ancient with the modern. I was like, well, what does that even mean? And then he said, I'm going to restore monastic communities and houses of prayer all over this nation. And at that time, I, I didn't have any idea or any incl- understanding of what, what that even was. Um, and then, you know, you kind of say these things and you just sort of move on, don't you? And then, as you know, in t- July 2022, or some of you may know, um, I had a prophecy called the shifting seasons, uh, or the seasons are shifting, rather, and that we were moving from a season uh, from summer into autumn. And uh, literally weeks after that, the Queen died and everything else began to change. And there were certain key things that came out of that prophetic word. Uh, One of them was that Stonewall uh, would fall. Um, And I'm looking forward to that day. Um, How the economic systems of our land will fall. Our government will also fall. 
Uh, God wants Egypt out of his people and thus needs to tell the powers of Egypt, let my people go, which was said last night. All that can be shaken will be shaken. And the uncomfortable bit is that the world will be shaken out of the church. And, you know, part of Israel's problem when they were taken out of the promised land, sorry, out of Egypt, beg your pardon, and they were taken into the wilderness, is that they were living in a slave mentality. And they wanted to go back to Egypt. But God is saying this time, no church, you're done with Egypt. And unfortunately, I'm going to have to shake Egypt out of us as well. That means Egypt's going to come out of how we do business in church, how we run our church, how even in our preaching, and how we're individually living our lives for Jesus, where we might have most of our leg in the, in the camp of Christianity, but we still like to tread the waters of the world every now and then. God is going to deal with that. Um, and then he was saying how many of the established churches will close, and other non-denominational ones as well, because the, either their candlestick is being removed or because of financial hardship. And then out of this will come a house church movement for a short season. And then those house churches in time will grow bigger and bigger. And then they will reconglomerate and merge into larger churches than what they started with. And the, the ultimate part of that vision was that God is going to, I'm going to explain all this in a minute, but God was going to lead his church into what was known as the golden age of the church. Now what that is, many years ago, uh, I again I had this, this open vision in the morning. And I saw this big chart with these dates at the bottom. And the dates on the bottom were, were all fudged out, so I couldn't see any dates, but I knew that they were dates. And at the bottom of the graph was this curve, this line. And for ages, it was just completely flatlined. And then slowly but surely, it started to do this. And then it just shot right up. And at the top of this line, it said the golden age of the church. And then suddenly, the line just dropped. And God was saying to me in that, that we're coming into a time where incrementally he's going to reveal more and more of his glory back into his church. More and more you're going to see more signs and wonders, more salvations. You're going to see more and more Christians that have been struggling with issues for a lot, probably most of their lives. Suddenly those things will fall away. And this is just the curve going up. But when, when it goes to the golden age of the church, this will be God's, I believe, part of his last ten end time revival that will be the sign and the witness before the rise of the Antichrist at the end of the age, that the church will come into a place of great strength and great prominence. Because Jesus is coming back for a glorious bride. He's not coming back for two Christians stuck in the, stuck in the basement with their machine guns, thinking they're the only two that have got it right, waiting for the end of the world. Amen? <laughs> Because like, we, we all know people like that, don't we? Yeah. I know what you're thinking. You're one of them. I'm not. I'm not one of them. Okay. And so one of the things that I learned quite quickly from that 2018 prophecy about these monastic communities is often if you prophesy something, you've got to be careful because you can become the prophecy. You become the message that you prophesy. And so in 2018 and then onwards... God led me and my, my wife on this merry dance into really understanding the ancient heritage of this nation, uh, looking into church history and discovering some things that, well, quite shocked me. Because when I was younger, uh, when I was about 18, I, 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 was, I got saved at 17. I think I was about 18 and a half at this time. And I walked out of some job that I was in and my landlady said to me, 
yeah, you can walk straight back out that door and go and get yourself another job if you want to live in this house. So I was like, oh, okay. So I went down to the job centre, and in the job centre windows, there was a whole myriad of jobs that I couldn't do. And then there was this one little thing that said cleaner at this place called Park Place. And I was like, well, I can clean. Clearly, I can't. I'm a guy, right? But then I thought, I'll give it a go. So I went along to this, this, it was a monastery, and it was just all these nuns, Franciscan nuns, just like milling around everywhere. And uh, I got the job. They were, they were cruel nuns, though. They used to play tricks on me. So like, if I was cleaning the toilets, they would come in to see, inspect how I'd done. But they would deliberately put the things like Coke cans up high. Of course, I'm a guy. I'll never look up there, right? And they'll go, you're not cleaning this place properly. And I'll go, why? Look at all those Coke cans up there. And, you're just like, and then one of the other sisters would come and go, oh, you're so unfair, Sister Mary. There's no way he would see that. He's a man. This is the sort of things they used to say. But anyway, when I was in that monastery, I, they taught me things about contemplative prayer and, and, and just how to come to a place of intimacy with Christ that I have never learned from any other tradition in the way that they taught me. And what they taught me was so special and it stuck with me for the rest of my life. And then, of course, you know, you go round the big mountain, don't you, of the charismatic world, leaving all that stuff behind. And it's a big old mountain, the charismatic world. I went all the way round it. And then I came back full circle. So as I gave that prophecy, it was like God had brought me back full circle to where I started. And um, I remember... A while back, Tracy and I, we, we went over to the Isle of Wight to go on a holiday. And as we were going over on the ferry, there, this advert came up on the screen in the ferry for this place called Quar Abbey, which is like a, a male monastery. And, uh, and as soon as I saw it, I was just, I just, something hit me. And I said to my wife, Tracy, I said, we have got to go there. She's like, yeah, okay. I said, no, 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 we've got to go there now. As soon as we get off this, this boat, we're going there now. And... Uh, and so we, we landed, and this place was literally around the corner. And so we just drove around the corner, went into this monastery. And I, I was desperate to go into their, to their bookshop. And as I went into their bookshop, I opened the door, and it was almost like I walked into an alternate Christian universe. And it was like, who are these people? Who are these books by? What is all this? And then I, I you know, ancient... Uh, mystics throughout church history, I don't know, like St. Julian of Norwich and um, St. Teresa of Avila and all these kind of people. I'm like, who are these people? Um, and I started reading about these people and then I started reading about church history and things and I, I realised that church history didn't begin 500 years ago. It actually began in first century and it's, it went all the way through, right through to today. And all of that is my heritage. But I thought my own heritage began 500 years ago. And so I started embracing all of these people throughout church history, saints, whatever you want to call them. And they really enriched my, my walk with God. And through doing this, I began to understand what a monastery was like, what, how a monastery operated. Um, and then, well, I'll explain a bit more. I'll just park that for a minute and I'll come back to that. Because, <laughs> I, you know, Sometimes God is really clever. I mean, he's always clever, sure. But sometimes he makes you do things that you're not aware that you're being made to do. And so since 2018, we have been on this kind of trajectory, which I thought we were going that way, but actually we're going that way. And I've ended up in a place which I didn't ask to be, didn't intend to be in this place, but it's the most amazing place. And it's, and it's really the heart of God for the UK, and it's a really prophetic thing, and it's exciting.
Because it's not something I came up with. Me and Tracy didn't work out, hey, what's our 10-year vision and we're going to go this way. It just wasn't like that, which is great because I can't do 10-year vision plans anyway. I don't even know what I'm going to do next week. So, and I don't know about you, but as a church leader, I, before COVID, there was a deep discontentment within me about church. I mean, I'm a church leader, I mean, uh, but I knew that I couldn't change where we were going because sometimes you need... Uh, a, a massive shift to happen. Uh, I'm trying to think of the word. Something shift. Um, paradigm. Par- past the word. Yeah. Paradigm shift. You, sometimes you need a paradigm shift to move you off your track to get you to somewhere else. And so our paradigm shift was COVID. So the first six weeks, you know, we were like a bit stunned by the whole thing and just just nice obedient Christians just doing as we're told, and we shut everything down. And I, and, and I don't know during that six week time something was just bubbling away inside of me, like, something's not right. It's like, this, this, is, this is not right. And I had to ask myself, when in all of Christendom has the UK church ever been shut down? Well, it was once, 600 years ago, because the Pope was annoyed with one of our English kings, and so he shut down the church for like six years, I think. But other than that, okay, which is quite significant, the church has never been shut down in all of history. And I had... No disrespect to him, because he obviously was our Prime Minister, so we have to respect those in authority. But when I had Boris saying, you shall... We were saying this, this was the guidance. Churches can't baptise in, in the same tank, because it's dangerous, you know, infection. You can't do communion the way you've been doing it. You can't give cash offerings, and you can't meet together as a church, and all this sort of stuff. And, and I was thinking, well, hang on a minute, that's what Boris says, but Jesus says, go into all the world and baptise. Uh, and, so, and then we are to take you know, the, the, the communion as much as we can in remembrance of him. Uh, and, you know, uh, and I went through all these things and thinking, well, hang on a minute. Who am I going to listen to here? Am I going to listen to Boris or am I going to listen to Jesus? Because I, I don't get me wrong, we're not rebels. We must do the right thing. We pay our taxes. We're good law-abiding citizens. But when the government starts to tell me something that is contrary to what Jesus has said and given us in Scripture, well, then we were... We had to come at things from a very different angle, which did cause a lot of problems in our church, I'll be honest with you. So we then went and spoke to Christian Concern, and they gave us some like silly ideas, you know, about, not silly, but like clever ideas, like, well, do this, do this. And at that time, Tracy was praying, and she opened her Bible in Jeremiah, and it said, go buy a field. Now, I'm not one of those kind of Christians that, you know, like get my Bible out and go, Jesus, what are you going to say today? Go hang yourself. Oh, that, that can't be it. Is there another one, Jesus? Concordance. Oh, well. Okay, I'm not, I'm not one of those kind of guys generally. But Tracy said, I believe God's saying that we're to get a field. And I was like, oh, okay, well, okay, whatever. So next day, my Bible reading happened to also fall on that. And I was like, oh, that's not a coincidence. So I, I asked a friend, I said, um, do you know anyone who's got a field or anything? And so she said, oh, I'll go and find out for you. Anyway, a week later, she come back and said, I found this lovely Christian couple that have this field. They want to use it for the glory of God, but they've never really been able to uh, you know, facilitate anything because just it's never, never happened. So we met with them and we spoke to Christian Concern and they said, OK, you can have all of your freedoms if you meet outside. Now, inside, if you're two metres apart, it feels like a mile away, but outside, it's just like it's just there. 
Um, so and people could stay in their own family groups. So basically, all we did is we just met outside. We put up this big marquee thing, and, uh, and that's where you know we, all the worship band and stuff were. And news of it just spread. We, 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 we were getting hundreds of people coming. We had people from London and all sorts, because we were the only church in the area, and by yourselves as well, that were actually doing anything to do with church on a Sunday. We were giving people the opportunity. So we didn't badge it as, as, as living word or anything like that. It was just church, because that's what we were. And from that, some, some great things began to happen. Uh, I didn't enjoy the experience, if I'm honest with you, because you know, everyone has these rose-tinted glasses. And, oh, Chris, if only we could go back into the field. It was so lovely. It was like there was those days where you were melting under the sun. There was those days when you got rained on and all sorts of things. And we used all kinds of clever technology. If it was raining, we'd have this FM transmitter so they could all pull up in their cars and listen to me preach in the comfort of their own car while <laughs> I'm outside being rained on, snowed on. I had, in one sermon, I had the four seasons hit me, literally, okay? So I don't have fond memories of it at all, but they do. And, and through that time, that was the paradigm shift that we needed to get us off the track where we were going. And that then led to other stuff where, because of what Tracy and I had been learning about these ancient paths and, and rhythms of prayer and things, God then gave Tracy another word, which was again, I think from Ezekiel, which was build, uh, what was it? Build the what? Uh, oh yeah, build, build the sanctuary amidst the allotment. And she says, I feel God saying that we've got to build a building here. And I'm like, well, that's really not going to fly with a farmer. And, um, but little unbeknown to me is that his, the farmer's wife went out for a walk one morning and she had this vision of this big building being built on their field. So she was all excited and told her husband. And we tentatively went to them saying, look, you know, we feel that God is saying for us to build our building on your land. How do you feel about that? And, uh, and she was like, oh, no, praise God. You know, we, we feel the same thing and stuff. And then we, we took it away. We got some really good designers that designed it and they worked with the local council and stuff. So they gave us a really nice design building. And there was three designs, and Tracy and I picked what we felt was the nicest design. Um, and we took that back, and then we showed the farmer and his wife, Eric and his wife, and she was like nearly in tears. Says, this is exactly what I'd seen in the vision. So we've now began this two million pound building project to build what in, is in all intents and purposes a modern day monastery. It is actually a monastery. Um, so it will have the, the church praying at the seven cardinal hours of the day, you know, all of those kind of things. It will also be a residential centre so people can come uh, and they can learn and study. It's about working the land, praying for the land. So there's be education there, Christian education, uh, principles on church planting and all that kind of stuff. Because we want people to come. We're not going to plant church anymore. We've decided that's not really what we're called to do but actually is to have this central hub, this monastic community where people can come. They can learn a form of church, so to speak, which is based from being a house of prayer rather than just being a missional kind of thing. And then they can take that away and take that back to their own places and adapt it to wherever culture or, or wherever they're at. And we feel that that's what we've got to do, which again is what the early Celts did. They found, what the Celts did is they found the worst place in the land to, to build a monastery. They go, where's the most evil place in this country? And I go, over there. You don't want to go over there. So I thought, maybe that's why they came to Cornwall first. I don't know. <laughs> no, they didn't really come to Cornwall first. They, I think they worked their way across. But anyway, so they found a place and they would literally pray over that place. I think Lindisfarne was one of those kind of places where it was renowned for evil spirits and stuff. They would literally go, right, 
where, where is that place where all the evil spirits are? Over there. Right, that's where we're going to camp out. So they would go there and they would pray and they would pray and they would pray until they make that land hallowed. And then they would build a community of prayer. And from that community of prayer, they would train up missionaries, etc. And those are the missionaries that went out across the nation that then planted churches that then brought this nation from a pagan nation to a Christian nation. And I believe that's kind of in part what, what we've been called to do. And in this whole rediscovery, we, we've learned a whole new thing. Uh, I'm doing a teaching series at the moment called The Blueprint for the End Time Church, which is not, it's not as great as the title sounds, but it's actually it's just coming back to actually what is the church. And the church, Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. The church was born out of a prayer meeting in, in the upper room. And so I realised that the way I'd been doing church as a leader and planting churches, we, we, we plant these missional-based churches, which is all well and good, but we get prayer and we kind of bolt that onto the side of it. It's like, okay, we need, we need your help, Jesus. We're here, we need your help. Can you please help us? We'll have a little prayer meeting. Whereas actually what Jesus wants is this to be the other way around, is that we are a kingdom of priests. And again, it's not something that's really taught much, I find in churches that your identity, because as Christians, we're all like, what's my identity? What, what's, my, um, what's my calling? What's my ministry? Um, and actually, your calling and your ministry is as a priest unto God, first and foremost. And we're more interested in ministering to man so we can have a platform rather than getting on our knees and ministering to the Lord our God. Because I, I absolutely believe this, that if more and more Christians did this, they would feel more content and more purpose-filled in their lives than they are, as if they feel like I've got to get on the stage or I've got to do this, and until I do that, then I'll be purpose-filled, driven, or purpose-filled, whatever. And it's when they get there, they get that horrible, they get that horrible cold feeling in their gut, like this isn't quite what I thought it would be. Like, like when I became a full-time pastor, you know, you have these rose-tinted glasses, like, oh, the anointing's going to be on me all the time. And then you do it full time and it's like, where's the anointing? It's just not even there. And it's, well, it is there, but it, it, it's, it's all down to how you do things. So like for me as a pastor, I, I did everything back to front to start with. For the first four and a half years of my life, it was the worst years of my Christian life bar none. Our church was plagued with every weirdo, every, everybody that wanted to, who isn't in church but wants to run a church. Yeah, you know those guys? Okay, I, I, I'm accountable to nobody, but you'll be accountable to me. And we had all of that kind of nonsense going on, and it was just awful. And it, and it got to a point where I couldn't take it anymore. And I was like, God, I don't know why you've called us to do this. I, I'm, I'm going to quit if you, don't, if you don't fix this. I'm, I'm, I'm done. And I really was at the end of my tether. And uh, that, literally that day, I said to Tracy, I said, I need a holiday now. I said, we need to go away. I said, because I just can't cope with this job anymore. I just can't do it. And so, literally, then, uh, probably 10 minutes later, Tracy had a phone call from someone saying, hey, there's a, a chalet down, where is it, Devon, uh, that's come up. Uh, would you be interested in having it for the week? And it's like, yeah. So we went down there, and, uh, and it, on that week, I had real time to do business with God. And, and he said to me, Chris, you're doing everything the wrong way around. You know, I was doing things like being busy for Jesus. I was spending hours every day trying to come up with the perfect sermon for Sunday and all this kind of stuff. And he said, listen... If you spent the amount of time you were doing a sermon and just spent that in prayer, I'll give you the revelation, I'll give you the download, and then you can just preach. And he said, and then you can just live from a place of rest. And I'm like, what does that even mean? Of course, in Genesis, the day begins in the evening, it doesn't begin in the morning. Whereas in our culture, it's get up, go to work, come home, and then, oh, 
But actually, the biblical principle is start from a place of rest. So then you can go to work, so then you can come back to the place of rest. And God was saying, that's how you need to do ministry. And it was, it was almost, well, it really was, it was overnight. When I came back and I started preaching in this new way and living my life this new way, everything turned around. The crazies left, and then the people started to come to join us. And uh, don't get me wrong, I, I, I'm as crazy as the next crazy, but... But, you know, the, the really nasty, naughty, crazy people. There's nothing wrong with being crazy as long as it's good and it's for Jesus. These guys were in it for their own ulterior motives. And uh, so they left and the church just began to grow. And within a year, we managed to get out of that horrible building and then started our journey to kind of where we're at today. So uh, anyone has, uh, experiencing that now, where, why Jesus? Maybe you need to learn to live from a place of rest. And so, what, yeah, where am I up to? So we're looking at things like so now we're looking at things like the priesthood coming back into the restoration I believe of the church in the UK, which God has linked me back to my 2018 word about monastic communities and blending that ancient with the modern. And uh, recently I picked up a book by Pete Gregg called Punk Monk. I don't know if anyone's ever read that. It's quite an old one, and I was really shocked. I turned over to read the back of it, and it said this. This was a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer who's a German Luther, uh, Lutheran pastor and theologian, and he was part of the anti-Nazi descent. Uh, has anyone heard of him? Yeah. yeah, okay. This is what he said. The restoration of the church will surely come from a sort of new monasticism which has in common with the old only the uncompromising attitude of a life lived according to the Sermon on the Mount in the following of Christ. I believe it is not time yet to call people together to do this when he wrote that. So he was saying that for the church to come back to the state that she needs to come back to, it has to be coming back to this kind of monastic community. Now when I say monastic community, some people think, does that mean I have to live a life of celibacy? <laughs> no, if you're married, no. Okay, I know some people might think, oh, that would be glad if it, if it did happen like that, but no, if you're married, you keep carry on as normal, right? But there may be some young people that, yes, that maybe are called for a season or for their life. Like, I just want to give my life to Jesus and I just want to give all of it to Jesus and lay down my life. But that, that aside. But I believe that God wants to re-restore this monastic community. Because you see, when, when King Henry VIII dissolved all these um, monasteries, I think he literally gutted the church of her power overnight. Because... Whether you like nuns or monks or get that whole thing is irrelevant. What was happening is that at several times of the day, they were praying. And not just were they praying, but the whole of the nation were praying the same prayers at the same time at 9, 12, 3, 6, 9, 12, 3, 6. Constant prayer was going up. Now what I learned about all of this, because you go, oh, but Chris, that's just religious tradition. But it isn't. Because what I found out was, is as I researched, where did all this discipline, where did this all come from? It didn't just even come from the early church. It came from the Jewish people. Now, I'm sure there's some people here that, unless it's Jewish, it ain't kosher, right? So you'll be pleased to know that this tradition dates right back to those guys. Okay, so in the morning, you'd have, you'd have like the morning incense would go up. And then at 12 o'clock, the animal would be um, attached to the altar. Then at 3 o'clock, it would be sacrificed. At 9 o'clock in the morning, Jesus was handed over. Uh, at 12 o'clock, he was put onto the cross. And at 3 o'clock, he died. 
And then the early church carried on that same tradition. But then when the, church, when the uh, Israel church were, were kicked out of Israel and they were sent into the diaspora, into Babylon and places like that, they carried on the temple traditions because obviously there was no temple. So again, they kept praying at certain times throughout the day. King David says in his Psalms, I praise you seven times a day. And that's where the seven hours of the day came from. The, the early Christians were trying to follow those seven points so that they could emulate what King David did in the Psalms. Now all this links into, and I haven't got time to talk about this now, I'm doing a big teaching series on this, about the restoration of the tabernacle of David. Because that is about offering constant streams of praise, constant streams of prayer. Now Paul says to the church to pray without ceasing. But of course, we're so individualistic in our mindset, we're like, well, how can I possibly pray without ceasing? Well, Paul's not talking to you, he's talking to you, plural. Now, if this church was to pray, say, like, at 9, 12, 3, and 6, and every church did that around the world, as a lot are, without realising it, you're all praying, all different time zones, and therefore the church is praying without ceasing. You know, so I know, I know there's places that try to do 24-7 prayer, and if you can do that, go for it. But most churches can't. So this idea of just coming together and praying those hours is really powerful. But here's another thing that I discovered. I know, charismatics, please just calm yourselves down. Okay, see this? This is a prayer book. All right, don't... So, and this, this, the, what's incredible about this prayer book is that this... Um, crosses many uh, divides between denominations. So this is uh, called divine worship. It's ba- the heart of it is really the Book of Common Prayer. Now, as I'm praying these prayers each day, now, you need to hear me out for a second. You might think, how on earth is liturgical praying? How's that even biblical? Isn't vain repetition of the devil? Didn't Jesus warn that vain repetition? But listen, okay, when Jesus talked about the vain repetition, he wasn't talking about the Jews. He said, don't do the vain repetition of the Gentiles. So obviously they're doing something that the Jews weren't doing, but I know for a fact that the Jews were doing, vain, not vain repetition, but repetition every single day. They say the same prayers in the morning, they say the same prayers at noon, the same prayers at three, the same prayers at six, but they're not guilty of vain repetition. I go to the book of Isaiah in chapter six, and I see the seraphim and the cherubim crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I get to the book of Revelation, and it's the same guys saying the same thing thousands of years later. So they're not guilty of vain repetition. It's not saying the same thing all the time is bad. It's when you are not engaged with it. You could be a charismatic jumping for Jesus and you're thinking about what you're going to have for tea. That's vain repetition. Yeah? Because it's, you've got to do it with your heart. If your heart and your mind aren't in it, then whatever you're doing, whether it's vivacious or quiet, it's meaningless. So when I do this every day, to me, this is, I'm passionate about this. And what's excite, what excites me about this? And, and this is something that we as evangelical Christians don't have. When we pray, we have our little prayer meetings, don't we? We do our little prayer and we'll go home happy that we've done a bit of prayer. But when I pray this stuff, I know that I am not just praying in my local congregation or just me by myself. I know that when I pray these prayers, I'm praying the exactly same prayers as the rest of the body of Christ within certain denominations that day. That's potentially millions of Christians. So now, I feel connected to the actual body of Christ. In the old church creeds, we talked about the, the communion of saints. You know, it's in the Apostles' Creed. You go, what's that about? Well, it's talking about 
The community of saints that are all in heaven, we see this in Revelation 4, 5, uh, and 6 and 8, I think, where there's, there's worship going on in heaven and all the saints are up there and the angels are up there. They are doing their prayer. They're doing their worship. And while we're down here, when we do our praise and we do our worship, it's joining up with the host of heaven going up there. And so I know that when I'm praying these things, I'm connected to the wider body of Christ on the earth, but somehow spiritually I'm also connected to my brothers and sisters that have gone before me in heaven. That's powerful. It's a powerful mindset, which I sadly have to say is not in many evangelical Christian churches. It's just not a concept. They, they, they think this is religious tradition. Well, it could be, but it all depends how you deal with it. But to me, this, this, is, this has been my lifeblood. And here's another thing about this simple book. Okay? It brings unity in the church. Because it doesn't matter what you agree with or what you don't agree with. We're praying biblical prayers, because 90% of this is scripture. You're praying biblical prayers, but we're praying it together. And we're praying it as the body of Christ. And it doesn't matter if, if you're into Hebrew roots and you're over there and you're not, or you're this and you're not that. It doesn't matter, because we're praying the same prayers, and therefore it's causing a form of unity, which I think is lacking in today's church. Hallelujah. And, and this, this whole kind of prayer movement over the last 30 years is, is growing and growing. So you will have heard of things like IHOP, yeah, 24-7 prayer under Pete Gregg, um, and there's various other forms and stuff and houses of prayer around the country. But uh, just give you an example. Uh, so this is just using technology. So on your mobile phones, there's the app called the Hallowed app. Uh, last time when I did this talk, it had 10 million installs, 225 million prayers completed on the app. Then you've got Lectio 360, Inner Room, iBrevery, Divine Office, Time to Pray. Um, now that app, Time to Pray, it's a Church of England one. Okay, it's a, Again, it's a really shortened down version of this. But what excites me, again, it doesn't, you've got it on your phone, you think, right, I'm just going to do this Time to Pray prayer. Well, you're just praying a prayer, and it's just like a set set of prayers, but you're joining with the body of Christ in a communion that you don't understand, or I don't understand, and that all of those prayers, those same prayers, are ascending into heaven. That, to me, is powerful. And I think that's one of the things, because as was being said here this morning, the understanding of, of, the, the, of the bride of Christ is not necessarily just an individual one, but it's a corporate one. And this is a corporate identity that we, that we have lost in this area of Christendom. Okay, there's other more traditional denominations, they don't have a problem with this. But I think we do. We're so disconnected from that, and I, and I think that's a shame. And I'll, uh, something else, uh, there was a while I was like, why am I doing this? It just feels, you know, it just feels, you know, you get those days where you're like, what am I doing, what am I doing? So I thought I'd put it down. I put it down for two weeks. And then I had this dream. And in the dream, I heard the audible voice of God say to me, I need you to pray with the church. And so got me back onto that. Because there's two types of praying. Praying in the church, where we just say our own prayers. Praying with the church, where the church en masse pray the same prayers. And it brings a, uni a unitedness and a connectedness that was never there in my Christian life before. So we've been doing a thing now uh, called Prayer School, uh, which we run every Thursday. And uh, we, we, we're having a great time. We, we've got Catholics and Protestants all in the same room, which can be interesting sometimes. You know, the Catholics always say something, you hear that <laughs> from the Protestants, which I think is just quite amusing. 
But, but they're all getting on with each other. And another thing is we're all taking communion together as well. Because we're one body. You know, I know we have different flavours. Some are more bitter than others. Um, but nevertheless, okay, well, it depends what you like. If you like really dark chocolate, you want to go and join that denomination. If you like sugary sweet chocolate, you come here. Amen? <laughs> so I'm just kidding. I'm just that. Okay, so I'm completely lost what I'm talking about now. Anyway, so our prayer school. But one thing that our prayer school really uh, showed us, which I'd never experienced before, was the community aspect. So again, as evangelical Christians, we're all taught, you know, go home. Do this in your, by yourself and have a quiet time. Get in your cupboard, lock the door, don't let anyone know you're there and have your quiet time, right? That's it. Don't, don't interface with anybody else. Just have your quiet time to yourself. And that's a good thing. You do need to go into your room and lock the door and pray. But we were, I was teaching these people how to do Lectio Divina, which is divine reading. and just It's a wonderful way of praying and meditating on the scriptures all at the same time. These are ancient disciplines which come from that other denomination, okay, and, and from, the, from the ancient past. And they've had such wonderful encounters with God through it. I mean, some of these people, they're like really as charismatic as you can be. And they said, you know, I've been a Christian for 20 years and I've done it all. And I've never, I've never come to a, a place of closeness with God as I have by doing this. But the thing that took me by surprise was doing it in the context of a community. So these people... Because when you do Lectio Divina, one thing happens pretty quickly. It's not just the revelations that you get about the Word and about God. He turns the mirror back on you. And you get revelations about yourself. Amen? <laughs> we don't always like to see ourselves in the mirror, do we? Amen? Uh, so it, some, some of these people, every week, you, know, you get people in tears as they get this revelation that, you know, I'm such and such. And I'm just like my father. I just couldn't. I never knew I was like that. And so people are just sharing stuff and revealing things about themselves. And then one lady, she's, you know, you know, you get those people that don't get church. I don't get church. I don't want church. I want nothing to do with it. Okay. She was one of them. And she kept coming. And she said, she said, you know what? I, I have really struggled with church all of my life. She said, but being here for the first time in my life, it's actually made sense. I understand it now. It's not just to be about me, myself and Jesus and then coming to a Sunday meeting and somehow I've got to interface with all these people. But actually it's bringing those two things together where we're, where we're doing an intense time of prayer together. We're on a journey together. We're opening ourselves up. We're sharing things. We're revealing things. And we eat together and we laugh and cry together. It, it brought a whole other dimension to church which I've never seen before, if I'm honest with you. And so then you can see why monastic communities were so powerful in their day, and still are in certain parts of the country, because of what it does. It's, I was at a monastery uh, about a couple of months ago, I went to Worth Abbey, and the, the, the monk said, oh, when we have a holiday, we, we go away all by ourselves. And I'm like, why would you do that? He said, because I'm just with people all of the time. So, you know, when we have a holiday, we, we get away with our family and stuff. But when they have a holiday, it's like, I just need to get away from all those, all those guys. So they go away by themselves. It's the complete opposite mindset to us. And that was really quite, a, quite awakening for me that actually what we have done with church is we've just made it merely about a meeting. And, and to make us be more sociable, we're like, hey, let's just have another meeting. But let's have a social meeting. It's like you have to force people to be sociable. But that's not how people are, right? Because if you don't want to do something, you're not going to do it. Um, and it just feels awkward and contrived. And so we've been doing a whole host of things. So the prayer school has really 
jailed people together. But then our allotment project. Now, a lot of prophecies that God has given me over the years is about the collapse of the UK economy, which, and it gave me another word a few months ago called the Jenga block prophecy, which was about God was going to pull that block that would bring the whole thing down, which is the housing market. That would be the thing that would cause the whole thing to come undone. Trouble is, with housing data, it's six months behind. So whatever the news is telling you, it's six months back. But now it's starting to come through the reality of where things are going. And so God said to us, um, well, said to my wife, you need to feed my sheep. And so it needed to be practically and spiritually. So on my, on my YouTube channel, I really upped the teaching stuff that we were putting out there to keep the saints happy spiritually and also prepared for what's coming. So like I did a, a, an 80-part series on the book of Revelation, going through it from a Hebrew roots point of view, a Protestant point of view, a Catholic point of view, and a Jewish point of view, and bringing all those schools of thought together. And that's, that's, that's gone down really well. It's been really helpful for a lot of people. But that's still not for now. It's for those in the future that will need that resource. But then we, then, then we said we need to feed the saints. So how are we going to do that? So we had, the, we had one of those awkward meetings, you know, where um, Matt will know this, where you get the trustees around the big table and you've got to ask them for a lot of money. Yeah? So uh, you never had that? Yeah, yeah, he's gone really quiet. Okay. So we were sat around this thing and I said to the trustees, I said, how much would it cost to, because again, going by my, my, my visions and trace visions, if, if for a period of time, if the economy shut down for a period of time, um, how much would it cost to feed everyone in the church a meal, at least one meal a day? It came to about £40,000. I was like, oh, that's quite a lot of money, but it really isn't really, I suppose, in the grand scheme of things. So I was like, okay, uh, how can we make that a little bit cheaper? And we'd already, Tracy had already been talking about the allotment, so that had already kind of already started. And someone said, well, if we just grow our own veg, that will, that will mitigate probably a third of the costs. So we bought like a big shipping container and stuff and we crammed that full of food and, uh, and a, another place where we crammed that with food and, and then we started growing our allotment project. So this is, but what's great about this allotment project is that again, it just created a community which I find is so often lacking in church today because the thing is you get a lot of people that are really, um, they feel disconnected from church. Somehow, deep down inside them, there's that longing like, well, church should be the answer, but somehow it's not the answer. Because we're missing one massive component. And that is, we are the body of Christ, and he made us to be social beings and to interact. I mean, God is the Holy Trinity. He's always interacting within himself. And we're not. We're busy at home watching God Channel. We're watching TV or something else. God wants his people to be a community again. And this is part of the identity of the bride. And unfortunately... It's going to have to come through difficult times to get us out of our houses and start coming together and working together and being there for one another as we always should have been. You know, when I look at the eastern block of the church where it's very family-driven, very family-orientated, they have really strong churches. I had a friend of mine, Daphne Kirk, and she said she had some Muslims that were commenting about the church in the west and commenting about the church in the east. They love the church in the east. Because it's like them, family and gathering together and eating together and doing life together is a really big part of that culture. But here in the West, we're like, well, we have our church meeting and then we go home and I get on with my life, thank you very much. And I get really involved in my own little family unit and that's it. And they're saying that is not attractional to us as Muslims. Now, not that we're going out of our way to attract other people, but it was a really telling thing from a cultural point of view, just how far we've drifted in the West. We have these social media like Facebook and it's supposed to help us become more connected but it's done anything but. 
It's actually made us more disconnected. You've got people on, at a dinner table, all sat there together, going... What are you doing? Talking to my mate. Instead of talking to the person that's immediately opposite you. And God wants his church to come back to this connectedness again. And again, that's why things like this are so important. Could you imagine if... If most Christians in the UK started just praying something like the common book of prayer, no matter what your tradition is, whether you're Hebrew roots or whatever you are, and we all just said, hey, let's just do this, not for our sake, but for the sake of the corporate body of Christ. And the whole body of Christ started coming together for the first time since the Reformation and actually started doing at least one thing a day where we could actually agree to do this, where we all pray the same prayers, which is mostly scriptures and psalms, just at a certain part of the day and at the end of the day. And I tell you, that would unite the church and make the church so strong because we're so disparate at the moment. We're so all over the place. You know, in AD 1000, we had the Great Schism, which caused that Eastern block of the church to separate from the Western block, and that's why you have uh, Eastern Orthodox, and then you had the Roman Catholic Church. And everything was then fine for another 500 years. And then came the Great Divorce, the Reformation. And since the Reformation... We can't agree on anything anymore. So now we've got 150,000 denominations because we can't get, our, get over ourselves enough to just get on with each other because, well, in your, in your understanding of communion, what, what do you think communion is? Well, I think it's transubstantiation. Well, I think it's consubstantiation. Well, I think it's the presence only. Well, I think it's just remembrance only. I'm going to divide and make myself a new denomination because I don't believe you what you believe because that sounds like the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not going to believe what you believe because that's Lutheranism. I'm not going to believe what you believe because that's Anglicanism. I'm going to go off and do my own thing. And then we just keep subdividing and subdividing and subdividing. And then when we baptise people, do you push them in forward or do you push them in back? Is it in the name of Jesus only? Is it in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit? And whatever we come up with, any different reason we can find to be different from somebody else is another reason why we can yet subdivide and subdivide the church. When Jesus prayed in John 17, Father, let my church be one even as we are one. And we've done a lousy job at trying to help Jesus fulfill that prayer. I heard someone say uh, the other day that it was his unanswered prayer. I don't believe that because the church was one for a thousand years. There was only one denomination. Can you imagine that? Just one type of church. Imagine every church you went to in the whole of the world was a wave church. Yeah, come on. Yeah, so some are in agreement. Some are like, mm, I'm not sure that is. Right? So, but imagine that, right? You only had one denomination, okay? I mean, it's just like, it blows my mind to think there was only one church. That was all you had. There was no choice. That was it. But that was the heart of God. He always wanted his church to be one. And I think in these days, you know, when the bride has come of age, part of that coming of age is that the church must become one again. And what we can't be doing is using, because you see, the thing is, what we think is unity is actually uniformity. And we all, and I'll just end with this in a minute, but we always make the secondary issues the primary issues. Here's the primary issues of the church. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. 
I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the resurrection of the dead, the, I missed one, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the dead. That, that, is, that is the primary core tenets of the Christian faith. Not, you see, what we do then is we make secondary issues the primary issues. And I'm, I'm going to deliberately step on some toes here just to make you, provoke you to think. Um, a primary doctrinal issue is not whether you believe in the importance of Israel. Because <laughs> I know that. I, 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 am, I am pro-Zionist, all right? I am on your side. But I'm saying that isn't the primary doctrinal basis of what gets you saved. Whether you, whether you think Christians should be Torah observant or not is not a primary doctrinal issue. It's a secondary issue. And it's the secondary issues that keep dividing the church. I remember reading a book by Brother Young, uh, and he was this guy from the Chinese underground church, and he said something really, really amazing. He said, the church in China was one. One church, the underground church, just one big church. But then people in the West, when they started donating Bibles, started putting in some little doctrinal statements of what we believe. He said it schismed the whole underground church. And I realised that day, it's our secondary doctrinal issues that are what divides the church. And we as Protestants, we're good at it. We've been doing it for 500 years and we still haven't quit yet. And I do believe God is saying, guys, you've got to knock it off. We've got to stop this. And it's important that if we're ever to see this happening now, the church has to get over ourselves. And we need to start thinking, I don't like those guys over there so much, but I know that they're Christians. I know they believe in the core primary tenets of the Christian faith. Therefore, we've got a lot more going on in common than we have that divides us. And we need to get over ourselves. There was a church, I think it was in Turkey, and a guy walked in and there were Lutheran, Catholic, Anglican uh, and Charismatic all in the same building worshipping together. And he was like, what? how is this possible? I've never seen anything like this. He said, well, when you're going through a tough time and you've got an enemy that wants to kill you, you get over all your petty differences and you come together to worship the one true God. And that's what Jesus wants for his church as the bride comes of age. Amen. Okay. Thank you.